life. Have you ever believed something that even when the truth was revealed and shown to you, you didn't believe it? Think about it. Have you ever believed something? And the word we're using today is delusion. Now, if husband says your wife says that you're delusional, that's not really a great compliment. Uh, you're delusional, yeah, that's not a good thing to say. But delusions are characterized by this unshakable belief in things that are not true. And often this continued in the belief despite contrary evidence. We probably have many illustrations that are going through our mind at this particular point. Delusion is defined as this. It's a fixed false belief that conflicts, conflicts with reality. Well, there's only one time in the Word of God that the word delusion is used. It's 2 Thessalonians 2.11. Let me read that verse for you here this morning. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Now, this word in the Greek... The meaning in this text, it means to cause to wander off path, to mislead, to deceive, deception. Now, in this text, this is, of course, talking about as the church is raptured, there is a delusion that will come to the people here. They will believe a lie. They will believe what is contrary to truth. However, when you think about it, Satan has been busy being that deceiver, hasn't he? We heard testimonies, of, I think of William's testimony. He was deceived with alcohol. We hear Jada being, being confused of her sexuality, and, and that's, that's what Satan does. He confuses, he pushes us off the path that God has for us. You know, he has been causing people to sin and be deceived for thousands of years. There are three particular questions or statements that Satan question Eve back in Genesis chapter 3. Let's go through three of them quickly. The Satan said to Eve, did God actually say, even though God says, listen, don't eat of this tree, did God actually say that? Or listen, you surely, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. Actually, if you eat it, you're going to be like God. Now think about those three statements and think about your life growing up as a Christian. How many times has Satan used those same, that same analogy? Hey, did God really say, are you sure that's the truth? Well, this morning I'd like to take just some time as we begin our message and as we close our message. And we're going to bring these two particular points together. We're going to look at two individuals, two groups of people. An individual who has the Spirit of God in them, one who knows Jesus, who's saved, who's a believer, and one who does not. We heard testimonies of individuals that came to Christ. And then we're going to come to the end of our message, and we're going to look at seven traits. Seven traits that we are, we're going to learn from the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 of how we can fight off the delusion of Satan if we follow these traits, which are, of course, biblical. So if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, describes these two groups of people. And everyone in this room falls in one of these two groups. So let's begin reading verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 2. Paul says this, Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit whom is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So right there, end of verse 13, those individuals who know Jesus, who have the Spirit of God in them, that's the first group of people. 
Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Here's the second group of individuals. The individuals, that's natural, as the text says. Individual doesn't, doesn't have the Spirit of God, who has not received Christ into their life. So you think differently, you live differently, you talk differently. And what's the common denominator? Because of God's Spirit. Who was Paul talking to here in, in, in 1st and 2nd Corinthians? He was talking to a group of Christians living in an immoral, wicked, debauched culture. Sound familiar? Talking to people that don't understand the truth of God. So Paul's telling these Christians, listen, the people around you aren't going to understand the truth of God's word because they don't have God's spirit in them. We have the same situation. We have family, friends, co-workers, neighbors that are in the same boat. We don't see eye to eye on cultural issues. We don't see eye to eye in spiritual issues, of course. So I'd like to, to, to do something a little different this morning. I'm gonna, I have two groups of questions, two questions that are theological in nature and two questions that are cultural in nature. And the first time we ask these questions, we're going to answer them from a secular worldview. I did it in the first service, and they're, they're, they're chomping at the bit as I'm saying what a, how the secular looks at this. Like, no, that's not the answer. That's not, I know. Just calm down. We'll get to what God's Word says. But theologically, there's two statements, and I'm going to answer them of how I've heard them. You may have different answers that people have given you about these questions. All roads lead to God. Everyone goes to heaven. Yeah, that sounds a pretty good plan. Hang on. But from a secular perspective, yeah, everyone, every religion is getting to God. Yeah, awesome. Hell is not real. It's just a scare tactic. There's no hell. I like that fact. God wouldn't send the people he loves to hell as a secular humanistic individual. Yeah. Okay, I get it. Yeah, I'll follow that. That makes sense. How about culturally? We live in a world where there's cultural confusion against the things of the Word of God. For instance, this particular statement, it doesn't matter who you marry as long as you love them. That makes me feel good. It does. That, that's, that sounds great, doesn't it? Or as we heard Jade in her testimony, I am the gender I feel I need to be. Follow yourself. Follow your heart, the world says. So as we deal with individuals, we have these controversial issues that come up. How do we handle them as Christians? We know what the problem is. We have the Spirit of God, and we pray that our friends and family receive that Spirit so they can see differently. They can put on those goggles and say, Wow, yes! We pray for them. We pray for them. Hopefully you're doing that. I love what Paul said to Philemon in Philemon 6, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may be effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Paul is saying to Philemon, who was taking back a slave who escaped from him, who is now a believer, is saying, listen, I pray that the sharing of your faith is, is, is effective. Pray that God gives you what you stand in need of as you proclaim the truth and share your faith. We have a faith-bound basketball league, and many of the men that are there have had times to pray. 
We pray before each game. We always pray. We're, calm, we're in common ground when we pray. We pray, God, we pray the gospel of them. We pray that God would open their eyes. That God would draw them to himself. And so, Corey, our ref, which many of us know, funny guy, guy I've come to know, he's like, Pastor, you keep throwing us under the bus with God. And I said, Corey, man, no. We want you to come to Jesus. That's not throwing you under the bus. We want you to see the light. We want you to have that relationship. Well, the second thing I think we can do with individuals that we run into, we disagree to disagree with, is have patience. And patience is not my, don't say anything, Judy, not my, my most uh, best quality. I love what Paul says to the church in Colossi, Colossians 4, 5, and 6. He says this, Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Ephesians 4 tells us we speak the truth in love. Paul was dealing with a group of Christians in Colossae that were agnostic. They disagreed with who, what Jesus, who Jesus is. And so the book of Colossians is the doctrine of Christology. I mean, it's talking about, gives you everything of who Jesus is, what he's come to do for you and me. And the culture was like, no, that's not Jesus. Jesus is not God. And so what is Paul telling these Christians? Listen, when you have these conversations with people you agree to disagree with, you do it in grace. You do it in love. Speaking the truth in love. Look at, look at the, some of the verbiage in there. Be wise in how you act towards outside. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace and seasoned with salt. So that you may know how to answer everyone. Are we doing that in our lives? Because as Christians, guess what? We're going to agree to disagree with people. Particularly with theological issues and cultural issues, right? We just are. But how we handle it is up to us. Handle it in grace. Handle it speaking the truth in love. Now, what does, now let's, let's talk about these questions from a biblical worldview. Young people understand it's very important. You understand this is God's truth. God's truth is always right. Regardless of what school says, regardless of what your friends say, you will be persecuted, ridiculed about being you know, a Christian. Understand this. This is your foundation. Amen. Okay, I thought, thought I was by myself there for a minute. Okay, so let's go back to that question of theology. All roads lead to heaven. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Very clear, you come to Jesus to get to heaven. There's many other passages of Scripture, but because of time, we'll take one. Hell is not real. It's a fictional place to scare people into doing good. Well, do you know that hell is mentioned 162 times in the New Testament, 70 of those times mentioned by Jesus Christ himself? I like Luke 6, 16 because it gives us the story. It's a, actually a, a, a picture of the rich man and Lazarus who passed. And the rich man went to, to hell, went to Sheol in a place of torment. And Lazarus went to the Abraham's bosom, which is heaven. And there was a chasm. And you, can, and you read Luke 16, you can see the description of the place you want to be, heaven, and the place you don't want to be. Why? Because 
The rich man was saying, please just send someone to drop a, do- a, do- a drip of water on my tongue because he's in torment. And go, please send Moses to go tell. Send someone to go tell them, so, my friends, so they don't have to be here. Hell is a real place, isn't it? I didn't create that place. This is coming from the truth of God. How about in the area of, 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 of marriage? And again, this is, these are cultural things that we have to grapple with in our society. And we have to just agree to disagree. God has ordained marriage. We've seen Seth and, and Sidney get married here yesterday. God instituted marriage in Genesis chapter 2 as one man and one woman. Again, I didn't make the rules. God did. And when society follows those rules, there is blessing. There is abundance. And when you don't follow those rules, Romans 1.26 tells us, there's individuals that follow the, they left the natural way of what God says, and they followed the unnatural. Followed the unnatural. God's truth, God's word gives us all the answers we need. And how about the cultural question? I am the gender I feel I should be. I get to choose what I want to be. Well, I look at Psalms 139, that God intricately woven each and every one of us any individual that ever lived in history since the beginning of time from adam and eve to present god intricately woven and made each individual who he wants you to be if god made a mistake in who i am then god is not perfect therefore he can't be god if god made a mistake then he is not perfect, and therefore he can't be God. And if you call yourself a Christian, that blows a hole in your whole Christian foundation. We might as well just take this Bible and pitch it out the back door if that's the case. But we know it's not, because God's word is true. God did what he does because he's perfect, he's holy, and he's just. And and let me just, the, the, the statement of follow your feelings... Follow your heart. That just sounds so nice. So warm inside, you know. But the Bible tells us too in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. In and of ourselves, Romans chapter 3 says that we don't long for God. In, our heart of, in and of ourselves, we don't want to seek after God. But when we get the Spirit of God in us, things change. So how do we keep ourselves from following the delusion of satan whether it's theological issues or whether it's cultural issues look at psalms 119 verses 15 through 16 the psalmist says this i will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes i will delight in your statues and i have it underlined for you i will not forget your word See, when we focus on God's word, when we focus on his precepts, when we keep his, our eyes on him, and we delight in his statutes, we delight in his ways, and we don't forget God's word, guess what? It's not going to be easy, to, easy for Satan to come and get us because we're going to be solely focused on God. I will not forget his word. Brothers and sisters, let's not forget God's word. 
Let's not forget what God says is true and hold to that, no matter what persecution or what individuals may disagree with us. We stand on the very essence of God's word. Because we know if Ephesians 6, 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the what? The schemes of the devil. And that word schemes in the Greek means the intent to deceive. It kind of is a, a, a friend of the word delusion to pull you off course, to deceive you. We stand on the truth of God. And that prevents us from falling into the delusion of Satan. And we think we have it figured out. What does it say in 1 Peter chapter 5? That Satan is like a roaring lion. He's seeking people to devour. When you think you have it figured out, guess what? He's going to come get you. Focus on God's word so we are not deceived. And so what are some examples? As I was studying this this week, so where can we go in Scripture that gives us an example of the church? The delusion that the church has swallowed at times through history. And I, I want us to turn to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And these are, these are letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches in Asia Minor, in, that, in Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey. book of Revelation scares people. We kind of reference Revelation in our study with Daniel, talking about end times and future events. But I'm going to give you a, a, a rule of th- uh, eight basic three-point outline of the book of Revelations. I want you, if you would, uh, think with me a minute. Think of a statue with a cover over it, okay? Have you ever been to, like, a statue or art reveal uh, party? Not this guy. Um, Sorry, uh, not interested. But there may be some that like that, and that's okay. And so this individual standing there in front of the statue, he's telling you what inspired him or her to make this or draw this. And what happens? Did a drum roll. They pull the sheet off, and there's this statue. And everyone's like, oh, my. And I would be like, all right, where's the food? I'm ready to eat. That's the book of Revelation in a sense. God has this cover, the future events. And he says to John, John, here, whoo. Here's what it is. Here's what's coming down the pike. The book of Revelation is very simple in outline. Revelation 1, what was? Jesus Christ. It talks about who Jesus is. Revelation 2 and 3, what is? What is current right there in that first century is the churches. Revelation 2 and 3, the churches. And then Revelation 4 through Revelation 22 is what is to come, the future events. And that's where you have many hours of Bible study because there is a lot of imagery and it's exciting to read and to know. That's the outline of the book of Revelation. So you can actually act pretty smart when someone asks you, so what's the book of Revelation about? Let me tell you, I got three points here, right? There's the outline of the book of Revelation. Well, there's three ways we need to see these seven churches. You'll see a map here in front of you. These were three, these were seven literal churches. These towns existed. They're in history. There were seven churches that were in these towns, these seven letters. And I like to call them not necessarily just letters, but more like postcards or evaluations. How many get an evaluation at work? Only Andrew? Okay, good. I was going to say. All right, who gets about, you get an evaluation, you're told what you're doing good and what you need to improve and what you're, how you're doing, and what you're doing bad. That's what Revelation 2 and 3 is. Jesus is saying, listen, here's what you have done well, churches, and here are some things that I'm not too impressed with. These are things that need to change. But thirdly, I mean, sorry, secondly, I'd like us to look here also, there's seven little churches, but they also represent stages in church history, those seven churches do. For instance, 100 to 300 A.D., the church went through 
a mass amount of persecution. That would represent the church of Smyrna. Okay, so it represents, these churches represent segments of church history based on their characteristic. And lastly, we can look at these seven churches and we can apply them to churches today, can't we? We know there's churches in the world that are worldly. We know there's churches in the world that are tolerating sin. We know there's some churches, particularly in the Middle East, that are experiencing persecution. They represent, they could represent churches today. But I'd like to take, take it a step further. Who makes up the church? The believers do. So we can take this as a personal challenge that we look at these and say, you know, I need to be more faithful to God. Because why? If the majority of faith Bible church is faithful, hopefully we're going to be known as a faithful church. If we're a majority of us are worldly, guess what? We're going to be known as a worldly church. You see where that leads us. So I want us to close today with seven traits. Seven traits that I believe we can apply to our life, which will then apply to the church to help us not dive in and go into the delusion of Satan. Because listen, Satan wants to destroy the church. He will do whatever he can to stop the things of God. He will do whatever he can to stop you from serving God. So we understand who our enemy is, right? We understand that. So let's look at the first church, the church of Ephesus. We call that the cold church. They lost their first love, the cold church. Ephesus was a city of about 250 people. It was known for its education. It had 12,000 12, scroll library. For those that are younger, just think of a 12,000 book library. Scrolls, that's what they read in those days. Re uh, religiously, Ephesus had the temple Diana. Diana was the god of fertility, and so in their worship was a lot of immorality. So this was a very education, a very well-educated city, but also a very wicked city. Let's look at Revelation 2, let's start verse 2, and see what Jesus in his little, in his evaluation says about this church. I know your works, your toil, and your patience endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false i know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary but this one thing i have against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first so looking on the good side of this evaluation jesus is saying listen you labor you work hard for my name's sake your patience you're pure. You don't tolerate evil people. You don't listen to false teachers. And you persevere. You persevere. But what was, the, what was the negative thing that Jesus said about the church of Ephesus? They lost their first love. What was that first love? Well, it starts with this love of Christ, love for brothers and sisters, and love for the lost. See, when you lose your love for Christ, everything else just starts to end. You don't, aren't passionate about your brothers and sisters in the church. You're not passionate for the law. So if you see those points, love Christ, love of brothers, and love for the lost. The church of Ephesus, they were doing all good things. They were following all the rules. They were going to church. They were doing all the all, great things. Jesus said all the good things they were doing. But they were doing it for the wrong reason. How many of people in churches are doing things for the wrong reason? We've got to keep that love of Christ, number one. And when we, have, we love Christ passionately, guess what? We're going to love our brothers and sisters, and we're going to love the lost. I think if there's an application, if there's a trait that we can grab from the church of Ephesus, is this. Reflect on the cross often. 
reflect on the cross often. When we reflect on the cross, we are reminded of the love that Jesus had for us. And that will motivate us to love God and love people. Here at Faith Bible, we, we practice the ordinance of, of communion once a month. But we need to remember and reflect on the cross more than just once a month. This should be a daily thing. This should be many times in a day. That motivates us to love God and love others. Our second church this morning is the church of Smyrna, the church in conflict, the suffering church. This was one out of those two churches that nothing bad was said about. If you like those evaluations, you're just the best employee in the world. You just keep doing what you're doing, right? And you get that big raise, right? The suffering church. Well, some fun facts for you for Smyrna is this. Um, Izmir is the third largest city in Turkey today. actually was built on the rubbish of Smyrna. Okay, so these towns existed. And uh, Izmir is a town that is actually on top of Smyrna today. Smyrna had a very large Jewish population. Hence, there was a lot of persecution. They, they were persecuted unlike any other time in history. Look at verses 8 through 11. Actually, let's start at verse 9. Jesus told this church, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear for what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested for ten days. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. They were persecuted. They were in poverty. And actually, when you see, when you, under, and you look at the cultural and historical ramifications of this poverty, they, they could not afford anything. They lived day by day because the government was treating them so horribly beyond their persecution of their faith, but even in their everyday life. People talked about them constantly. They suffered. They were going to be thrown into prison the trait in which we need to take from Smyrna is this. Walk the way of persecution. I know that sounds, what are you talking about? But what happens in persecution? Persecution purges the church. It always has and it always will. If, 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 if persecution comes to our, in South Jersey or the churches, guess what? It's going to purge the church. And it's going to be a good thing. Those true followers of Christ will walk that way, no questions asked. It's very interesting when you study the church of Smyrna, they were persecuted so heavily, like you couldn't say, hey, I'm a Christian, are you a Christian? They would have been killed. And so what they would do is they would meet new people in the community, they would stand there and be talking. And so if I'm talking to Andrew, hey, Andrew, Andrew nice to meet you, so where are you from? No, oh, great, awesome. As they were talking, they would draw half of a circle in the sand with their sandals. And if that person was a Christian, they would come up and finish as they're talking and complete what we call an ichthys in the sand, that fish that we see in the back of cars that I used to have in the back of my car that identified them under persecution that they were a follower of Jesus Christ. Isn't that kind of neat how they use these little, little drawings to prove who they were in Christ? Well, the Roman government caught on to that. Those individuals that were caught doing that were end up killed. Guess what? They found another way to identify themselves. See, it just purged the church. For some Christians today, if we had to do that, we'd say, I'm just going to watch on Facebook. I ain't going to go out there and do anything. Right? Because we're comfortable. Church of Smyrna was not comfortable. They were not going to follow the delusion of being a comfortable church in the midst of persecution. Brothers and sisters, 
If God allows us to go through persecutions as the church in America, we must walk that way. Because we will be better for it. We will be better for it. Number three, the church of Pergamum. This was the compromising church, the worldly church. You know, uh, I'm from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, so we drive through Lancaster. There's a church on every street corner. Just is what it is. It's the Bible Belt, so churches on every corner. There were temples on every street corner in Pergamum. Not good temples. Temples of gods that they worshipped. Zeus and Athena. And actually, they brought into the fact they worshipped Roman emperors, which gave them the permission to worship. So if you're going to worship the emperor, he's going to let you practice how you see fit. Let's look and see what Jesus says about the church of Pergamum. uh, Chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have these things against you. You hold fast to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans, not the Nicolodians, the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them. So one of the good things they said about Pergamum, hold fast, they, they held fast to his name, and they didn't deny Jesus' name. But the bad was, they followed false teaching. I'm going to say this, and Faith Bible Church has been a church that has st- stood true to, to doctrine and theology, and the pulpit has been protected and guarded in that way, and it needs to continue to do that until we're all dead and gone. If Pastor Mike or Pastor Frank or myself, we, are, we teach something that's incorrect, you need to yank us off this pulpit. See, that's what the church of Pergamon, they were letting people, they were letting heretics come in and teach whatever they wanted to teach, even if it was contrary to the word of God. See, we, we have those teachers in churches today, the heretics, they come in and they're just preaching false, false teaching. But there's this individual called the charlatans. You know what a charlatan is? Turn on TBN. Turn on Christian TV, and you will see these guys in their suits trying to get money from you. They're using the Bible, they're using God's Word to rake you over the coals financially. They're charlatans. They're false teachers. The prosperity gospel. How about the divider? The individual comes into a church knowing what they believe, but in mid-course changes his belief to divide the church. There was a pastor in Vineland, New Jersey, who did just that. Went to three different churches speaking and talking about a doctrine which the church believed and then changed midstream and tried to divide the church. Now he's selling insurance somewhere where he should be. That was nice, I know, I know. We have individuals who are the ticklers. You just come in and they tickle your ears. Oh, that was so nice, I need to hear that again. You know, the Joel Osteens, the former, you know, uh, Robert Schuler's. See, it's the Stephen Furtick's. There's guys that you like, they like, like, like you want to hear what they want to say. And just, you leave here, I am the best person in the world. Jesus loves me. And, you know, I can do nothing wrong. We're going to stay our course and understand that when we come to church and we hear the word of God, we should leave here like we just worked out in the gym. But man, that was a tough work. I, I, I need to change this. I need to do this. Not leave church like we're a beauty parlor. I don't have experience at a beauty parlor, just so you know. 
I like what John told the church in 1 John 4, 1. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. I think our, our life lesson, our, our, our trait here is this, as we learn from the church of, of, of Pergamum. Be a student of God's word. Be a student of God's word. When we are in God's word, we can test. And we can say, wait, that, that wasn't right because the Bible says this. No, that was that, It says here that, and that's the way we need to be. I don't want someone who's not a teacher give me a test and grade me if they don't know what they're talking about. Be a student of God's word. So you can test the spirits, the things that are true and aren't true. Let's move on to church four. I'm going to try to go through here. I know dinner's on the, on the oven. I know it'll get, get, get you out of here soon. Thyatira, number four, Thyatira, the corrupt church. They tolerated sin. Actually, we know Acts 16, Lydia, the individual that Paul led to the Lord, was from Thyatira. They worshiped Apollo. They worshiped Zeus, the sun gods. He's the chief of all gods. And here, look at verse 19. Here's what he says in chapter 2, verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patience, endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my service to practice, practice sexual immorality. Okay, here's the good. Works, love, faith, service, patience, endurance. This, you guys are doing this great. However, there's this woman. Now, her name's not Jezebel. Jezebel has a negative connotation, doesn't it? From 1 Kings, Ahab's wife, who was a bad girl. Yeah, I don't know of a woman in my lifetime, the, the, the parents named her Jezebel. <laughs> I don't know if his parents need to be, like, smacked around or something. Because I was like, man. But in this text here, what Jesus is saying, there was a woman. Actually, history tells us it was a pastor's wife who was seducing men to, and her forming her own religion out of the church. And so Jesus referenced her as Jezebel. Jezebel. I think our trait we learn from Thyatira is this. We cannot be conformed to the world. We can't be conformed to the world. I mean, sexual immorality in the church? Although Paul told the Christians in, in Rome, Romans 12, too, we know this verse well. Do not be conformed. That word in the Greek means to be shaped like. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transferred by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We can't be conformed to this world. Five. Sardis, the comatose church, the dead church. Actually, the one thing about the Sardis is it, actually where modern currency comes from. Sardis is the, the birthplace of modern currency. There's only one thing that the church of Sardis was known, was, was, that Jesus said to them. He says this. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you receive and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will become like a thief, and you will not know at the, at the hour in which I will come. Verse 4, yet you still have, there's a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. There's a church that is dead. And Jesus is saying there's a few in there that haven't defiled themselves. This church was doing all kinds of stuff. They were, they, didn't, they were just church by name. 
See, based on this description, many churches in America are, are, are this way. There are people that are coming to church to just check it off their box, and they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They're just coming to church because it's what my mom did when I was growing up. We just come to church. Warren Wiersbe says it this way. A person may have his name on the church roll. You know, William and Jay just joined the church and, and Leanna. Yeah, we heard their testimonies. We believe they are, but they are Christians. But there's people in churches today that just joined church, but their name's not written in the book. They're just following the rules and regulations of church. I think the trait we learned from the church of Sardis, the dead church, is this. We must possess, we must possess Christ, not just profess him. There's a lot of people that believe in Jesus. They believe in God. Oh, yeah, yeah. But are they truly born-again believers of Jesus? No, because they haven't called, in, called on to him for salvation. Forgive my sin. Come into my life. Save me. Change me. That's possessing Jesus and living like one who is a follower of Christ. We must possess Christ, just not profess him. Church of Philadelphia, number six. It's the faithful church. The faithful church. Here's the, and we're, just because of time, we're not going to read through that, but the verses are eight, verses eight through, chapter three, eight through 12. Here's the good things that they did. They kept God's word. They did not, they did not deny God's name, and they were patient in endurance. I think we look at Philadelphia, they're, they're the faithful church. I think the trait that we learn from the church of Philadelphia is remain faithful in the work of God. Remain faithful in the work of God. I like what Paul told the, the Christians in Corinth again. He says, first, at 1 Corinthians 4, 2, he says this, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. The words that we all want to hear when we see Jesus is what? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Faithful servant. Again, as, as we're looking at these traits, personalize them. Because we make up the body. We need to have these traits. We need to live these traits because it's going to flow into the church. Our last church this morning, Laodicea. They were the complacent church, the lukewarm church. Laodicea was a place of immigration. Many, many if, you, if we would show the map again, you'll have to, Chris, but many n- cities would come through Laodicea for commerce. You see that Laodicea was in the middle of them, so there's a lot of diversity in Laodicea. But what, he, what, did, he, what did Jesus say to them that was good. Nothing. Look at verse 16. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Wow, that sounds like a really good description to be on an evaluation. They were, they were ineffective for God. That he wanted to spit them out of his mouth. That's that figurative language there. But I want to understand, Jesus was the master object teacher. Okay, Laodicea sat in the middle. There was, the Heropolis was a water source. It was hot spring for medicinal reasons. And it would flow down to Laodicea. By the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. You had Colossae, it was known for its cold springs. And when that water, by the time it trickled down to the city of Laodicea, into the, into the streets, it was lukewarm. Jesus knew they understood that word lukewarm. I mean, we don't like drinking things that are lukewarm, do we? No, it's, it, 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 it can be effective if it's cold, and it can be effective if it's, if it's hot. Have you ever been out working the yard, it's really hot out, and you jump into a pool, and it's like, it's freezing, but it feels good, right? 
Frankie and I with the youth group one time, jumped into a pool with the teens, and the lady had the heater on. It was 95 degrees out. It was 95 degrees in the pool. I think I got sunburned jumping into the pool. So you can be effective being cold or high. It's the effectiveness. I just always think, I'm not, I don't want to be cold for Jesus. If I'm effective cold, yes, I want to be a cold person for Christ because I'm effective in the culture in which I'm in. It's effectiveness. You can be effective cold or hot. What Jesus is saying here, listen, you're neither. You're lukewarm. I want to spit you out of my mouth. So I think the trait we learn here in this last church is this. Being effective in your faith produces worth. Being effective in your faith produces worth. That's when you get your evaluation from Jesus. This, this is what you're doing. This is, what you're, this is the good things that you're doing when you're effective in your faith. So churches, we look at those seven traits. How are you doing in your own life? Can we look at them personally? There are four churches, but this is what makes us up as Faith Bible Church. Well, we follow these traits. It's very interesting. You look at the, verse 20 in chapter 3. This is a verse we have taken, not necessarily out of context, but we use it in a different context. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. We use this verse. Hey, people need Jesus. He's knocking at your door. Great. Yeah, yeah, we can, that's true. That is true. But in this context, who's Jesus knocking on? Whose door is he knocking on? He's knocking on the churches. He's saying, churches, hey, you think, Jesus is the one who started the church. Why wouldn't you let him? Jesus is saying this. Listen, he's knocking. Churches, he's, let me in. He's not forcing himself in. And, I, and if you look at that word eat there, some of your versions say, uh, dine with me. In cultural understanding, when you ate with someone, when you ate with their family, that was a time of intimate fellowship. And Jesus is saying, listen, let me in. And I will, I will be with you and I will guide you and I will direct you. So how about it, brothers and sisters? Will we continue to let Jesus rule and reign this church? Will we let Jesus rule and reign our lives? I hope so. I hope so. And let's look at those seven traits and apply them to our life this week. If you're here visiting, we are so glad you're here. So glad you can join us. We hope to see you again. If you have any questions or anything at all, we'd love to answer those questions for you. Let's pray and we'll have you guys dismissed. Father, we thank you for this time. We come together and just study your word. Lord, thank you for... Um, the new three members to our family, Lord, who've come to faith and loved hearing um, their testimonies. And Father, we pray that, that, that for everyone here, Lord, if there's someone here or watching that has not put their faith and trust in Christ, that they would do so because that's the most important decision that they would ever make in their life. We love you. We thank you for this day you've given us in your precious name. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next.